Hello, everyone. Welcome to Waiting for Game weekly podcast from Melee Stats. I am your new host for one episode because our good friend Gimme That Wheat is on a road trip, trapped on the side of a road somewhere, maybe. Who knows where he is? But uh, we have a very fun episode for you today. Uh, I have with me uh, none other than the fabled Dr. Piggy. How are you doing? I'm great. And uh, I'm excited to talk about my research because that's one of those... It's one of those things I could just talk about forever, and I never know if it's the right audience. You know, if you're at a smash party and you start talking about your research, you wonder, like, how much is this person listening to me because <laughs> they're being polite, <laughs> and how much is because they're really, like, into the psychology of smash or gender yeah, dynamics yeah. or whatever. <laughs> so... <laughs> well, you are on the right show for this. Uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, I did my undergrad in cognitive science, and I did my thesis project on Super Smash Brothers Melee. So there's a special place in my heart for people like Dr. Piggy, uh, who uh, you know thread the needle of the intersection between academia and Smash. Um, it's a very small but very passionate group of people <laughs> that are that exists within this intersection, uh, and. Our shows usually go pretty long. We're trying to keep that like shorter these days, but you know that's not always how it pans out because everyone just loves to talk when we talk to them. Um, <laughs> so you don't have to feel worried about talking too long. Uh, okay. okay. But um, yeah. So like she mentioned, uh, I am very excited because we're mostly just going to be talking about uh, Kyle's thesis paper, um, which uh, we're gonna we're gonna run through the whole topics. We're gonna talk about Smash and Academia in general. Um, very, very full ticket of, uh, fun things to talk about today. Um, so I guess let's just jump right into it. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that like, uh, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts just about the intersection point between Smash and Academia, because I feel like it's, a, it's not exactly like a non-existent space. There are like a number of very interesting people that are, that are doing academic work within Smash. But, um, I'm interested like in your perspective of like what, what drew you to that, like what, what do you think has potential to be really interesting work within the community and within academia? So what do you think? Let me start with that. Yeah. So this actually reminds me of a discussion. There was like a couple months ago, there was some moment on Twitter where people were like freaking out because some uh, uh, business was offering certification for esports, um, some something or other, like leadership or whatever. And a lot of people um, rightfully pointed out that a lot of the ways to get into esports are actually go get a skill, get trained in it, and then use it in esports, right? And uh, it's kind of the same thing for academia, in my view. You don't like walk in saying, okay, I'm gonna do something with Smash because then you'll end up going nowhere because um, it's it's massive, right? We've got community aspect, we've got the game itself, we've got skill learning, all of these things are happening at once. But if you walk in and you say, okay, I study how um, our physical body relates to the world, that, and then I'm gonna use Smash as an example or, uh, uh, you know, I study, um, or I program machine learning <laughs> algorithms, and I'm going to use it to see if I can train a computer to be like Mango. You know, <laughs> like, doing um, something is probably the best way to get into Smash and Academia, and I'm no exception. Um, so I actually, so I did my undergrad in psych at um, UChicago, uh, graduated 2015, and then I, um, applied for grad programs, and I wanted to study the neuroscience of creativity. So I am in this lab where, you know, we uh, do brain scans and have like these very exact tasks and everything. And I wanted to know like, okay, well, when people are under pressure, how do they perform? Um, 
turns out it's very hard to replicate the pressure. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to replicate pressure in a lab setting. And so um, I ended up coming to Smash because in my everyday life, when I went to a tournament, I would see people willingly over and over again, put themselves in super high pressure situations. And so it was sort of like my first year project failed. Uh, where can I find this effect in real life? And suddenly I'm a Smash researcher. It took time, but you know, um, four years of going to tournaments and collecting data, talking to Smashers, figuring out what makes people tick. Definitely, um, it's weird that I got a PhD in Smash, but but yeah, that's where I'm at. So <laughs> yeah, I I think it's uh, I think it's so interesting because uh, I think that like uh, my own experience is like very similar. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Coxi is I think a very funny. Um, at least you know the way it was in my in my undergrad because uh it's very interdisciplinary right mm -hmm. uh, the way that, that my field works and um we had to like design our own programs around like each individual department or whatever um so that you can just take like intro linguistics intro education intro whatever like and just take like 50 intro classes and then graduate yeah yeah um so they always taught us to like think of it in terms of the problem right mm -hmm. like if you have a problem learn what you need to learn to solve like or to make you know headway on that problem and then like do a project around a problem. Yeah. Um, that was like one of the one of the first things we learned like as Cogsite people. And I just think that Smash is so funny because it's like full of problems, right? <laughs> I, I just think that like um, you know, it's like you mentioned, like if you have any skill at all, um, Smash is just this like endless well of potential applications for ideas. Like uh, you mentioned like machine learning um, as a as a potential avenue uh, i i don't know if you just like pulled that out of your hat or anything but i know that like xpilot is like the one example that comes to mind immediately who's a who's a he's a, like a he worked in josh tenenbaum's lab at mit and mm -hmm. now he works at deepmind and he made a his his thesis work was was uh philip the the machine learning um you know uh agent to play super smash brothers and he like beat up all the top players at that one shine that he went to so it's really just like whatever whatever skill you have applied to whatever formalized problem within the community you can think of uh there's really just like a lot of avenues for that like i think like you know mpgr is a really interesting example just like mathematically the example of like interpolating between players and like sorting the graph where everyone's connected like mathematically it's like a very interesting construct and it's mm -hmm. very very hard for machines to do it um just like, you know, those are things that like come to mind for me immediately. But like, uh, I just think that it's super funny that like, you know, there's not more, honestly, because I, I just think that like, if you have any connection to this match community at all, I just feel like, like, there's all this discourse every day around like arbitrary topics. And like, you can just pick something and make headway on it. And it's super, super interesting. Yeah, I think there's going to be a big generational shift soon. Because like, um, right, I've been gaming since the 90s. And that it's, it wasn't like quite as big as it is now, for example. So right now, there are a lot of kids, or I say kids, but there's a lot of people in college that like grew up on Minecraft. And there's like way more people that grew up on gaming than there used to be. And so it's funny because now if I'm like writing a grant or trying to convince a professor that my work is important, I have to like talk in a very like, video games don't cause violence or, or you know, <laughs> um, like uh, frame it in a different way. Like, oh yes, I'm a cognitive scientist. I study skill learning in video gamers, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> But but as soon as we, we get more and more people in here that care about these issues, I think there's going to be a real explosion. And um, I'm excited Yeah, absolutely. For that. Yeah. Like yeah. When, when the department chair at like, you know, whatever university you go to is someone that like grew up playing video games and don't yeah. just think that they're uh, what their kid plays when they're not behaving or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Minecraft is a really funny example because Minecraft, I think, is a game that's like actually huge right now in in the research space. I know that uh, like NeurIPS, the machine learning conference, there's like a big competition for like designing an agent to be able to navigate Minecraft or like oh, like a, awesome. a pared down Minecraft uh, environment. But it's like, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff popping up, I think. Uh, it's becoming, I think, a little bit more legitimized as a problem space, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah. Um, I also think there's a lot of really interesting, like, community-type work. Um, I know that Spoopy has done a bunch of very, very interesting work um, on just, like, the culture surrounding mm -hmm. the game as well. Mm -hmm. um, I really think that there's, like, just, like, a lot, a lot to, to explore there with regards to... Um, what could really, really be uh, written about, I think. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I'm like, don't go off on this tangent, but I'm like, wait, he gave me permission. Yeah, to go please on go on the tangent. Okay. <laughs> so so I, that makes me think of how, like, the scene has shifted. Like, okay, so my spouse was got in on the Brawl Days, and there's an extreme, it, the community is so different. It's so much bigger. Um, there's a, you know, I mean, gaming communities have always been kind of young, but like, it used to be that you could really, end up in somebody's house and you would trust them um, and at this point not everybody knows everybody anymore right there there have been giant shifts in in like norms and culture and um trust and and yes there's so much there um and my work looks a little bit at that but it looks at the individual level versus like spoofy uh spoofy did uh, an ethnography which is like you immerse yourself in the culture you understand all of these different forces at work, both external and internal, and then you know bring it all together and try to explain why are Smashers the way we are? Why do we still play on CRTs? Well, or do we? And um, why do we still play on uh, a GameCube controllers? Or do we? Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you you did work on uh, on monitors, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, this is it's sort of adjacent to my work, right? Because mm -hmm. um, the 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 thesis that I did uh, in undergrad was about input latency perception. Mm -hmm. um, so you and I have like a bit of overlap here, right? Because we both do um, expert uh, expertise and expert performance type mm -hmm. work, right? Um, yeah. I remember we we had a chat about the uh, the Oxford Handbook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, very, I, very, I don't have very, it with me, but it's this <laughs> big old thick book that's like uh, you know great articles about people learn at all sorts of in all sorts yeah of things. yeah um but what i what i studied was more um like a temporal visio motor perception mm -hmm. um and uh you know I, I think it's a very interesting topic because i think that um a lot of people they look at the numbers for monitors like this is like without any lag fix or whatever codes mm -hmm. um but they look at like oh it's delayed by four milliseconds surely you cannot perceive that it's four milliseconds surely you can't perceive it I'm just like, oh, dude, perception makes no sense. <laughs> no, it you doesn't. Can't, you yeah. can't say surely for anything, dude. Um, I went down this big rabbit hole of, like, trying to prove to people whether one was, their, one was you know, plausible or not. And it's, like, there's all this stuff about, like, stitching together temporal events in your head so that they appear synchronized. It's, like, really, really fascinating stuff. Um, Our brains very, are the most powerful machine. Yes. Right? So we're talking about machines. Our brains are infinitely more complex than anything we can make right now. <laughs> Most of what I do now professionally is uh, is like AI machine learning type work, mostly like machine perception type stuff. Um, and like one thing that I keep trying to tell people, because there's always there's always like these ideas about like, oh, this thing will work. Um, I think this thing will work because when I look at it, it looks like it will work. Um, you know, like, oh, this looks great. This looks like the machine will definitely think this once it looks at it. And I'm like, oh. 
you don't know about visual perception. <laughs> you don't know how much how much legwork is being done to make you think that these two things look the same. Uh, just like I always try to like link people to just optical illusions. Just like, yeah. oh, please just read optical illusions. These yeah. things do not fool machine learning models because they don't have, you know, uh, heuristics at play to make right. you think certain things. Right. Um, they are literally yeah. just going off the the stimulus the input the, yeah, the yeah. literal thing drawn on the page whereas our brains are like oh if a pencil is is over here and then the eraser is over here they should connect right and then it's like oh no yeah, yeah. <laughs> no it doesn't <laughs> yeah that one in particular i think i remember reading a study that um that's actually a learned thing um because mm -hmm. uh like the idea of like objects being connected when occluded um, that's actually not inductive. <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was very cool research where it was like, um, you know, they looked at like looking times for infants. Mm -hmm. like yes, baby, 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 yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, they're actually, it's like, it, it appears more like around like age, like, you know, like 12 months or something. I don't exactly remember when, but um, the, you know, if you like have like a book, a book and like you have like a pencil that appears mm -hmm. like this and mm -hmm. like if they move separately that's really weird to adults because mm -hmm. it's like oh that should be the same thing yeah um but infants don't have that it's very no. interesting <laughs> um but yeah sorry we're, we're both sort of tangenting <laughs> i think a little bit but i think that's sort of what we had in mind for this episode so i do want to talk a little bit about your work um and i think that i want to get to that as fast as possible because i feel like we're going to be there for a long time all right um so give me a quick rundown of like like elevator pitch of your work i know it's like a hundred something pages so like it's like very hard to, to condense all of that down to a sentence or, or or whatever but let's tell the tell the viewer at home what they should be expecting from the rest of this episode great yeah so there's more work than that i've done than what's in the dissertation but generally what i tell people is i study the process of skill acquisition in um competitive video game players specifically i look at what are the cognitive social and um, emotional factors that impact the skill acquisition process. Um, so that's like a, a long sentence, but it sort of encompasses, I'm interested, how do people get good? Um, and when I say how, I mean, not only what, what um, practice routines are they doing? You know, what strategies are they taking to learning the game? Or do they study frame data? I also mean how, like, with what friends or social support? And I mean, how with like, do they keep going even when they hit their plateau? Uh, do they do they get so salty that they quit? Or, or you know, um, all of those things contribute to skill. And I think you know, in expertise literature, there's always been these discussions of practice versus talent, right? Like, oh, if you if you were naturally born with a faster reaction time, then you're going to be better at at these skills, right? Um, but we know that practice is huge, and that practice and talent certainly influence each other. And, but practice isn't as simple as go put in your five hours, right? Anybody who's tried to learn this game or, or any skill, uh, if you can see, I have a piano in the background and that was my first uh, um, experience with skill learning processes and how frustrating it is when it just uh, doesn't just work the first time, right? So yeah, I'm generally, that research has taken me in several different directions. I've asked players to spit into tubes so that I can measure their stress response to see how much their body is preparing them for a tournament weekend. I, uh, you know, and I've brought 
uh, 20 women into the lab at a time uh, to run a novice tournament. And the room has been filled with laughter. And um, they leave thinking a little bit differently about video games. And all of those things contribute to somebody's ability to actually end up playing and being good and maybe even top 100. Very cool. Yeah, I think the we'll get to it. It's like a little bit further down in the topics list. But um, I definitely read the the novice tournament part of your thesis and I was geeking out. I thought it was the <laughs> coolest thing of all time. Um, but yeah, no, I think that that's really interesting. And I think that uh, I always tell people that uh, the process of getting good at Smash in general is uh, it's very interesting because the reward signal is so bad compared to other things that you normally get good at. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's like um, it's very difficult to measure how you are improving at smash relative to other things um you know like if you implement like a new technique or a new a new idea in a matchup or something it's so difficult to see like oh this will make me win more right mm -hmm. like like the actual like appearance of reward after you implement something is like so like abstracted away further down the line mm -hmm. um so i think that this line of research is super interesting because it's like what type of people are able to persevere through like this this very very uh, not kind learning environment where mm -hmm. it's uh, dependent on a lot of uh, internal abstraction? I know like a lot of people have different opinions about this about how like easy it is to learn melee at a high level or whatever, but um, I do think that uh, it's a very interesting to see what patterns emerge. Uh, so. Yeah, so that's really, really exciting stuff. I have a lot of notes. I, I, I crammed your thesis. Uh, <laughs> you didn't have today. to. I would have no. explained it to you <laughs> or anybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I do have a lot of very fun things that I'm interested in talking about. But oh. um, let's like jump into like the, the first big topic of your thesis. Um, mm. uh, and I guess that's the... Um, the idea of like anxiety versus performance, right? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, this is something I think is pretty intuitive when you say it to people. Um, I think the other two are a little bit less intuitive, uh, but it's also like very cool research. Um, so, and it's like very important for laying a foundation for the other two. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, anxiety versus performance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think at some point in our lives, each of us experience anxiety or nerves or choking. Right, whether it's on the SATs, ACTs, or um, my undergrad advisor, she it happened to her when she was doing uh, uh, Olympic tryouts for soccer. She was a goalie and she just totally choked. And uh, or uh, in video games, you, when you're playing way below, you're missing the, the combos that you normally you know hit every time. Um, and you know what's happening there, right? Um, what's interesting is that it's more complicated than just uh, uh, than, than it seems. Uh, for example, the reasons that an expert golfer might choke are different from the reasons a novice golfer might choke. Uh, the reasons you forget something and blank when you're uh, after a night of cramming and when you blank on something basic like, I don't know your name, <laughs> you know, these are all actually different cognitive mechanisms. And what I find really fascinating about Smash in particular is that not only do we have this motor component, which um, uh, uh, traditionally you Anxiety interferes with the motor component when um, you're overthinking otherwise automatic processes, right? But then Smash also has a super uh, big demand on the cognitive component of trying to predict what your opponent's going to do next, uh, varying your own strategy, um, and, and you know, there's all these things going on in your head and your hands when you're playing. So there's so many different ways that you can fail, <laughs> is basically what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. And you can, um, if you overthink, 
you know, if you start focusing on your sweaty hands or, um, or, or your inputs that you otherwise wouldn't focus on, that's going to um, not only mess up your inputs, but also mess up how much brain space you have, more or less, to think about the game in front of you, right? So there's obviously what I'm just talking about are like some really short-term effects of anxiety, right? Like if you're going on stream for the first time, uh, you know, it's your, it's your first national level tournament and somehow you got lined up against the first seed in your pool. So now you're going to go play on stream and get destroyed, right? Like that is um, stressful, <laughs> physiologically stressful. Like your body is, is responding to this, this threat you're perceiving. Um, and, and it's, it's valid. It is a threat to your, well, <laughs> performance and, and your ego and all these other things, right? Um, so generally speaking, I think most of us would agree that the uh, with the idea that anxiety harms performance. Um, but I think something that's interesting to consider is that we might all agree on that because we already really care about Smash. <laughs> um, so if you were, say, somebody that really didn't like video games, but somehow you ended up on stream, like you might be nervous because you're being perceived and you might be being judged by people. There might be an evaluative anxiety component, but there's much less of a performance anxiety component. But because all of us in Smash are already pretty motivated to play or, or to win or to get better, whatever reason we're here, um, that means that most of the time anxiety is going to push us past uh, the, the level of like awareness, alertness that you need to be able to compete. Um, some people talk about a U-shaped curve, like, oh, if you're if you're not if you're sleepy, you're not going to play well, yeah. and if you're too hyped, you're not going to play well. The Yerkesdotson, right? Yeah, Yerkesdotson yeah. uh, curve, but and there there you know, there's some evidence that like for example, our hormones, our stress hormones, line up with the Yerkesdotson curve. Like there's a, a deal amount of cortisol you, you, circulating in your body in order to be um, at a, a good performance level, but like not everything uh, follows that curve. So. It's a little oversimplified, but it's a good way to think of it. Sometimes you need more anxiety. You need some anxiety. You need to care, but you uh, shouldn't have too much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Finding that um, balance is very fun. <laughs> yeah. So um, in that first chapter of my dissertation, actually what, what is one chapter has turned into three papers, by the way. <laughs> it was very hard uh, to, to chop it all up for a dissertation. But um, so one study is literally, I asked everybody after every tournament game they played, how anxious, how much energy do you have right now? Are you feeling positive or negative? Did you choke that last match? Uh, how did you feel about your play? And I did that for about 100 people uh, at two, three, two or three national tournaments um, and a local. Um, and I did find that when somebody rated themselves, uh, like they just finished their second set of a tournament and they're, they're saying, oh, I'm really over, I'm really hyped up. Um, they do worse on their third set. Um, and that's, I mean, to me, that's some evidence that like, how we how we how we play and our what our bodies are experiencing is important to our performance. Um, that that finding still stands even when you control for their uh, their um, oh the seed difference right. So like I was just talking about with threat perception, if you're on on stream right, if you know you're going to play against the first seed, you're going to get anxious just because you feel like you're going to lose right. Um, and of course that has. Uh, an impact on how anxious you rate yourself even after the game but there is a component of what anxiety did you have anyway uh from other things ex exogenous factors so um yeah that was i thought that was cool that i actually could go into a tournament and i could ask people of all skill levels you know i, I had o2ers i had people that turned in 17 because they did 17 tournament matches they made it really far right um and all across all of these people there's something um about getting overhyped that ends up uh, interfering with their subsequent performance. 
Yeah, this is I think one of one of the favorite parts that I had about this chapter in your thesis is the 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 seating threat, the the perceived threat threat from seating. So uh melee, we're melee stats, we love seating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people people in our in our in our circle are frequently involved with the seating of national tournaments. So I saw mm -hmm. this and I was like obviously I was very intrigued. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, I think that this idea that like uh, you could, you know, see that you're about to play a top seed of an event, and then like you know have like a very elevated like cortisol response, and in, in, uh, as a result of that, I think was it was very relatable. Mm -hmm. um, but it also made me think of uh, this other paper that I had read. I think Jack Zilla sent it to me like a long time ago. Uh, it's called Selecting the Best. Uh, it's, it's a it's paper out of uh, I think Northwestern. Um, but this one, it was really funny because it like kind of corroborated a lot of what you were saying. Mm -hmm. um, they found that um, they did a similar study on elimination tournaments where um, instead of like the perceived threat of the person you were playing, it was the, uh, they called it the shadow effect, which is basically the seed of the person that you would play after if oh, you beat them. Yeah. So if you yeah. won your match, um, you would have to play a top seed in the next round. Mm -hmm. Um and uh you know this is a very interesting uh, way to look at it because you can actually control for um you know how good the, the the player that you're playing before that person is yeah and they found that uh like across the board uh if you play someone with the idea that like next person you play is really really hard you have a lower probability of winning because you're already experiencing the threat yeah yeah um like that immediately jumped out of me when i read your thesis i was like oh yeah that makes perfect sense because yeah. the, the shadow effect it's probably like already actively happening before you even get to that round right um yeah shadow effect i should look that up yeah i'll yeah. link it to you after because I, I was just like oh this is so cool i think <laughs> I yeah that was, that was one of my cool. reviewers was like so wait there's space in between these tournament games right so how do you know that it's the one before that's affecting the subsequent and not some other well first of all i found an effect okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> but second of all reviewer two we, yeah i know <laughs> actually it was reviewer one this time it oh no that it seemed like maybe they had recently like published something and they were like all up in a fuss that I didn't mm -hmm. follow their specific what yeah, whatever yeah. academia <laughs> yeah. um but yeah that, that that could be some ammunition in my in my uh re revise and resubmit <laughs> to be yeah, like yeah. actually there is <laughs> evidence already yeah oh that's great uh but yeah no, that was a that was a super cool part of that I know that um there's a guy in our discord who I think is in chat sp99 who who is just a uh, he always talks about seating <laughs> and about how he hates it Mm. Um, which is very funny because like a lot of us are involved with like doing the seatings. We're like mm -hmm. SP, stop it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, he always talks about how seating should all be randomized because oh, uh, the 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 really good players get easy brackets because they get good seats or whatever. And I, I I saw that you had that as a potential suggestion in uh, in the end of the seating part too. So I, I thought of SP ninety nine when I thought <sighs> read that as well. So like, oh. okay, yeah. So what's interesting. <sighs> Like I was saying, um, having to explain to a reviewer, like, what is smash? What is double elimination bracket? What is seating? Why does it matter? Like, that takes up so much, like, space in a paper, yeah. right? And so I feel like I have to dumb it down sometimes and just be like, uh, you know, seating's how good it is. But but I know, and I've sat in the same room when people are, like, reseating because somebody had a regional conflict in, in a pool, like, two one or two nights before the... <laughs> the national tournament, right? Like seating is not perfect. And, um, you know, as 
there have been a lot of people that have like tried to create an elo ranking and, and or, or some kind of like universal ranking for smash players but we are just too uh there hasn't been enough crossover maybe it's different because of slippy and the pandemic maybe well, i don't know so i i have <laughs> i have a big write-up about this oh um, good you're, you're handing me a layup this is like shadowing. Of, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah i think that, that uh there are definitely problems with elo with regards to specifically how it works for um double elimination Oh yeah, and for character differential, this is like oh, the yeah. two the two big ones, and also yeah. like um closed pools, like all of these things like completely destroy most of the rating algorithms because um the way that I like to think of it right is um you know when you're doing like the ranking problem, it's kind of like you have this big connected graph, right, um where between like every player is a node in this graph, and um the the like the cord connecting two nodes is like the record that, that they have right um and you know you could you could say that there's like a number of observations and then win rate is the thing that connects every there's like a two parameter cord um and uh you know things like elo kind of assume that like everyone's normally distributed and like everyone has the same number of matches but like or that uh, there's a lot of connection there's a lot of cords yeah, right but right we know that there's not right there's yeah. regional cords that are super strong and then right. like there's two people that go out yeah and you have to make like a huge uh you know projection based off of that and like uh, i think even with slippy i think it's really funny to think about because like you have like you know things like smash world tour i think are a really fun way to think to think about this right because uh we have all these like regional very interconnected uh there's a lot more data now than there were um like you know just a couple of years ago but even even so, like we have no idea how good Pipsqueak is relative to the rest of the United States because he only gets to play European players, and it's like how good is how good is Leffen right now? Like I have no idea. Um, like I think he's really good. Uh, how's he going to do at main stage? You know, no one has any idea because like the the pools are just like completely separated, and you have to like make all this like wild judgment based off of how good everyone is relative to each other. Yeah. So I think uh, seating is like the very. Uh, human attempt mm -hmm. yes uh which i think is is very fun but i think yeah. like just like as a as a mathematical construct the the ranking problem is super super fascinating to me because it's like you really do just have to guess a lot of the time and it's like what 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 methods do you use to make that guess as educated as possible it's very yeah. interesting and you know that's something that i've run into a lot as i'm writing up my papers um is is that okay so my work is very field study right like i'm not uh, well there is a study where I bring people into a lab and control the conditions, but like uh, most of my data is I went out to smash tournaments and, and saw people and, and I'm trying to draw conclusions about patterns of data, right? So that actually makes it really hard statistically because like you're saying, um, how can you tell you improve? Uh, you know, if if you fixed some um, some combo you always dropped or, or some input that you didn't, maybe, maybe you can quadruple shine at home, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, what's interesting is, um, if your opponent can interrupt you somewhere in there, then it doesn't matter how many shines you can get off because your opponent like outplayed you. So basically no, no performance data is truly independent. Um, not at the match level, not at the player level, not at the regional level. Everybody is going against each other. And yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, chess has had a couple hundred years um, as, a, as a somewhat simpler game in order for us to be able to say outright that somebody's more or less skilled, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we're playing high-speed chess with seven colors, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and, and uh, it's not turn-based, right? Like, anyway, um, 
it's very complex and there will always be mathematical problems to doing research in the field or looking at existing data and trying to make meaning out of it that that just doesn't it, it's not the same problem when you are like building a computer algorithm from the ground up or when you're bringing people into the lab and manipulating how threatened they feel yeah for sure um yeah so uh i'm trying to try to look through my notes do you have any other like big overarching thoughts on the first chapter Oh, um, so I did find that anxiety, you know, from game to game matters uh, within people, but also that um, people who, oh, okay, I, I want to explain this correctly. So um, when you feel anxious, there are many different things you can do, right? Maybe you pretend it's not happening. Maybe you really lean into it and get yourself uh, uh, in a worse off place, or maybe you know you have a way to deal with it. Like maybe you've been meditating or you can exercise or there's somebody you can just go and like, tell all your worries to and then come back and feel refreshed, right? So our ability to cope or our ability to um, shape our own emotional experience uh, is typically thought of in uh, in academia as either self-regulation or emotion regulation specifically. And so I was finding a trend that people with better emotion regulation tend to do better in the tournament. Um, and of course you could guess that that's because, oh, when they do feel anxiety, they, um, they deal with it better and so they don't suffer performance. That might be. But it also might be that in order to get to a high level, you already had to have pretty good emotion regulation. You you couldn't have given up when you plateaued. You couldn't have given up when you were totally embarrassed on stream. Um, you had to keep going in order to keep learning and practicing, gaining skill, and then outplaying other people. So there there does seem to be a relationship between emotion regulation, anxiety, and how people perform. But um, it's it's hard because you're looking at what's already happened, right? You, Going back, you know, or maybe there's, you know, does Z, does Y cause Z, does Z cause Y, or does X cause both? Yeah. Who knows? Um, it's like the survivor bias. It's very yes. difficult. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I thought of this when I when I was thinking about. Um, I remember halfway through that chapter, there was um, you're you're finding that cognitive reappraisal is worse in really skilled players than it is in really unskilled players, mm -hmm. which I thought was just hilarious because like I just pictured like every top player having a meltdown <laughs> yeah but yeah. i'm like no no i need to think about this this is we can make sense of this it's probably survivorship bias because they had better emotion regulation i was like oh that makes a little bit more sense but yeah it's interesting because um so some of the reason the, some of the things i talked about like seeking social support or like uh having physical actions that you do to change your body's chemistry right um those are things you can learn uh or or uh and that different people have access to in different ways. So like if my spouse is at a tournament with me, I'm going to be way better off than like if I needed help or a hug or whatever, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be better off. Um, so there are there are things you can do in between matches, right? But then when you're sitting on the angel platform, having, you know, just lost your three sock lead, is that really the time where you're going to sit down and you're going to say, okay, in this situation, I am extremely stressed, but I need to remember that my family loves me even if I lose, right? Like there are, there are, there's a lot of self-talk that you don't have time for in, in the moment. Um, or even sometimes between sets, depending on how, um, uh, how hyped up you are, how much you need to calm down and how much else is going on, right? If you've got people like coming on, if you look, it's like, a lot of top players are like, don't talk to me after I just lost on stream, right? And it's because you are hyped up and you you can't, it's really hard to calm down. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's going to be differences, but but it might be that some people just are more reactive, right? And um, it could be that some people have learned some strategies that actually hurt instead of helping. So for example, catastrophizing or thinking, oh my God, 
all my friends are going to make fun of me when I go back to my region uh, after this major, you know, like, you don't know that yet. <laughs> right? That's, that's actually going to hurt you to, to have that kind of thought process. Um, so yes, you could do something like sit there and remember, okay, my family's going to love me no matter what, but it takes a lot of energy versus there are some other strategies or just baseline reactivity that people have that could mean that you just have more emotions to deal with or you're making it worse for yourself. And those are the things that seem to be harming performance. So in the case of Smash, when it takes so much energy to just play at all, um, I, I believe, I, I'm thinking that the bad, uh, the data is suggesting <laughs> that the um, the bad strategies hurt you, but the good strategies aren't like as good as it would be maybe in another um, context, mm -hmm. like yeah. in, in, in an interpersonal relationship or, you know, something. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's very interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I am interested in, in this whole, this whole line of thinking about mm -hmm. emotion regulation and performance. Um, Cause you know, I, I do think that like, it's very funny to think of it as like, you know, blunt affect is like the self-selected thing. Cause high pressure is so hard or whatever. Uh, part of me wants to believe that there's like some way that like mm -hmm. if you're a very emotional player you can make it if you master your emotions or something um, but I, I do think it's like a, a, a fun you know way to approach the problem is to think about it in this way well I do think that emotional players can quote master your emotion but I don't think it's like what people imagine when when you might hear that. So you might think like, oh, I'll just feel less. That's not the goal. Yeah, yeah. The goal is when you when you have your feelings, you put them in the right direction. So for example, one uh, there's been at least one study that found that when you're feeling anxious and hyped up, if you think about your hype, your your energy levels as being excitement instead of dread, that is one way to help turn around some of the negative effects, right? And so I think being emotional shouldn't stop anybody. And in fact, it's extremely motivating, right? Like mm -hmm. if you care enough to get back into the next game, that's going to help you you keep going but it can also be too much in the moment so this is like very uh huge like open-ended <laughs> um very like rich potential place to study human emotion because there's so much pressure and there's so many demands um but we'll see maybe maybe in my post my next postdoc or something <laughs> but, but, definitely yeah. excited i remember yeah. actually um i read something similar to this about um like a paper about like how people can develop higher self-efficacy mm -hmm. um i remember thinking about this because i remember seeing in an interview um it was like a leffen interview like from way back like 2014 or something where um he he talked about like what he does when he feels anxious at, at the tournament or whatever and uh it, i thought it was super interesting because it was like not something that i would have thought of at the time where it was like he he was like oh yeah you know I always try to think to myself that like this is the emotion that I came here to feel like this is like exactly what I'm trying to come here to experience so this is what I want this is what I am trying to experience and I'm like that's so weird why would you do that but like and then I read a bunch of these papers and I'm like oh it's attribution of that's arousal. great like, actually yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and if you extend you know the the idea from the other study about well some of the arousal or some of the emotional energy has to do with uh, threat right if you can convince yourself in any way that it's not threat, it's, you know, challenge, maybe that that'll give you. An yeah, yeah. Well, this is definitely more than three papers worth of work by itself, but I think we should uh, maybe That's potentially okay. move on. That the, was the... chapter 
well, chapter two, but uh, the first study of the dissertation. Only. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the second second part of your thesis is, uh, if I remember right, it's about women in the Smash community and particular. Um, so this, so well, we can talk about that one first if you'd like. But uh -huh. this was specifically about women who don't play games and trying to right, see right. how they, so, yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about this. Okay. <laughs> it's clearly, okay. I'm misremembering the order. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. So um, one thing, I've been a gamer my whole life, and that's been challenging in, in many different ways in terms of gender, right? And so one thing that I hated was that growing up, I knew one other girl that played games. And I knew, I, I, I always ended up hanging out with the guys because they're the ones who I could talk to about Pikmin or Smash or you know whatever other thing I was doing at the time that I really enjoyed. And so um, I started thinking about uh, what are, what are, why don't girls play games? Um, obviously, that's an entire question that people have already written multiple books on. But one factor that might have to do with it is when they get into, uh, when they walk into a tournament and they see that it's just like 15 guys and they're the only girl. And even if the guys don't do anything weird, right, like even if there's no flirting or gatekeeping or anything like that, um, just the fact that that gender, you just become a minority for existing for something you can't control or change that might have some impact on the way they think about their skill or we think whatever. So um, one way to think about that, or one phrase that for that effect is stereotype threat. So the idea that just because you're expected, just because you are different and that difference is highlighted in some way, whether direct or indirect, um, that's gonna take out some of your brain space that you could otherwise be using to learn the game or play or you know, whatever, enjoy yourself at a, at a local. Um, and even if you like, like me, I always thought, oh, it doesn't matter that I'm a girl. But the, but the fact that I had to think that, no other guy in the room had to think that. No other guy in the room had to be like, oh yeah, it's not a big deal that I'm a guy, right? Like even, even trying to cope takes up more brain space than somebody else who has no, nothing to cope with or nothing to um, uh, reconcile between their identity and the activity or the social setting that they're in. So I wanted to look at um, specifically, uh, small tournaments, so like I said, like 15 people, whatever, um, bring in a bunch of people who have no idea what they're doing. And I tell them straight up, none of you know how to play this game. We're going to spend an hour, I'm going to teach you some basics, and then you're going to come back and play each other. And then I wanted to see, okay, does having a 50-50 split of men and women result in uh, the same like performance as, as a group of all women, right? And in a perfect study, I also would have done groups of all men, but I didn't really want to do that. That, that already exists in nature. Um, <laughs> so, so, so yeah, I had these two experimental conditions where I brought people in. Nobody's good at Smash. Nobody's ever competed. Teach them the basics. They come back. All play each other just round robin style. And I see. Um, I mean, I also asked them before they came in, uh, "What other games do you play? How good are you? Or you know, what experience do you have?" And um, yeah, what I found was that the the women that, that came in and just played with other women, not only were their anxiety levels lower at the end of the tournament, but they actually performed better. Um, and that's not because like they got a boost. In fact, it's because in the condition where um, there was a co-ed cohort, there were um, it, the women in the co-ed cohorts were losing every game against the men, even ones that they were theoretically better than. Like, the, like there's women that say, oh yeah, I play Smash like once a month. And there's men that are like, I've never played this game before. And a woman might still lose to him, even though she has vastly more experience or plays like 15 hours a week of other video games. And, and that's like, 
some of those numbers in in the study are just really stark. <laughs> you know, um, if 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 they're equally skilled, women almost always lose in the co-ed setting. If a woman is more skilled, women also almost always lose in the co-ed setting. And you know, I'm, I'm putting in all these statistical controls. I'm doing all this self-selection. I tell them at the beginning of the study, you all suck. Well, nicely. And um, and they, there's still this effect that when they walk and sit down next to a guy with a controller, there's some, uh, I don't know, is it a voice in their head that's saying like, oh, this guy probably is going to beat me. Maybe, you know, maybe that's rooted in their life experience where guys were more, uh, uh, you were better at games and so they just have this expectation or maybe it's like oh because i'm a girl i can't do well you know the, the, they sound similar but they are different things um and so i wanted this study to be like i give them an emotion regulation um uh, uh manipulation and then see like if the people who could cope or you know who who I tell teach how to regulate could actually regulate better, but there was no effect there. Again, because I believe it's the uh, it's, it takes too much effort to regulate when you're just trying to remember what the buttons on your controller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or play at a high level, you know, whatever context we're talking about. Um, yeah, and of course, there's some, there's some uh, qualitative component of this I mentioned earlier that when I was in the room with all these other women and nobody everyone knew we all suck or whatever right and they're just like oh i need to play every other person in this room there was laughter and joking and oh my god how did you get kirby to do that um by the way men and women pick kirby equally when they're inexperienced <laughs> the game. i was actually wondering <laughs> yeah that's yeah. super funny i think kirby is just very non-threatening no matter your gender <laughs> yeah no he's very soft and cute uh, and i think it's very funny how frequent he is as a character because this is just like because I used to run the Smash Club at, at my school, and uh, it's just wild how how people gravitate towards Kirby. Like him in particular, he's just like the casual character. Like you'd yeah. think it'd be like Link or Mario or something, but no, people just somebody love well Kirby. known. No, yeah. it's, <laughs> I love it. It's ironic. Oh, my shirt is a parody, and Kirby in in Play-Doh Ball is this uh, <laughs> is what representing Kirby on this nice. uh, Nintendo shirt that is clearly not a Nintendo knockoff. Not a not copyright infringement. Oh no, no! Don't add me to that list. Yeah. <laughs> Although I I do have to look up legally if I'm allowed to use Super Smash Bros. Melee in the title of a manuscript or not. Oh, that's actually a very interesting question. I wonder yeah. if they can cease and desist the journal that you're publishing in. That'd right. Be... <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because it'd be great press if you got that. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> the local researcher loses <laughs> entire career because Nintendo can't handle their game being mentioned in. That's very funny. Yeah, there there have been uh, there have when you when you Google like, uh, go to Google Scholar or your your library or whatever and try to find Smash research. There is some use of it, but um, they, they've all been really low impact uh, studies. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Maybe I'll just take the chance. Maybe I'll put Melee in there and see what. Happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, was I? Yeah. So I I had a lot of of uh very fun thoughts uh because i think you got a great result for this chapter in particular like mm -hmm. i think that the effect size that you saw uh was pretty dramatic uh, oh yeah uh so i thought that was super great i thought it was um a very great motivating example for smash sisters in particular because mm. uh, i have like a lot of friends that are that are involved with smash sister with smash sisters whenever it's in at a major or anything and uh i think a lot of people don't get it um like I, th I think a lot of people are just like oh well, we're super smash brothers and it's like <laughs> you're playing it <laughs> i don't understand um 
but I think that, uh, you know, the environment that you describe sounds very familiar to me, uh, mm-hmm. just from like the experiences of other people that I know that have done, uh, Smash Sisters in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think the idea that they're all playing better <laughs> is, uh, I think like a very fun, motivating example for like, oh yeah, you know, like this is an exhibition, but like we all play extra well when we're playing other women. So it's like a more, uh, you know, like a, a far less threatening environment to be competing in, which is very fun. Um, yeah, I, I commentate several Smash Sisters, and it's actually the same kind of effect for me on the mic. As when I, like, you know, I've commented pools at like Lotier City or Smash and Splash, and I'm always so, I'm like, oh my god, I can't get anything wrong, or there's going to be dudes <laughs> in Twitch chat all over this uh, saying all women suck, right? But when I'm commentating Smash Sisters, first of all, we don't have a chat, which is great. <laughs> yeah, um, that's great. <laughs> but also, like, I'm usually sitting next to somebody who's like just as invested and like chill with what's going on as me i don't have to i don't have to sit there and wonder like oh is my co-commentator gonna like flip something on me to to prove his dominant I, you know whatever yeah yeah <laughs> um, weird thoughts yeah yeah you do i don't have those worries they don't yeah. come into my head um whether you're a player or you know yeah involved yeah otherwise oh yeah, no. there, okay. oh, well so in my results i discussed the anxiety and the performance but then there's also um one result I didn't talk about was how they perceived their own skill. So in the women only cohort, and actually men in the co-ed cohort, if you ask them, how well do you think you did compared to everybody else? It actually is almost a perfect line with how well they actually did, right? Like, if they beat everybody, they're going to rate themselves 10 out of 10. And if yeah. they lost everybody, um, but the women in the co-ed, co-ed cohort, they could have been actually, they could have performed literally as well, like totally average won as many as they lost and they would rate themselves as like the bottom 25%. That's so, wild. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's like a, there's like a confidence or self-efficacy component to this as well. Um, so it's not just like, I'm anxious and I fail. It's like, I'm anxious and I fail. And that means I'm bad um, because I'm a girl or what, you know, <laughs> there's, yeah, yeah. there's so many layers. But yeah. Yeah. I, I, I frequently, um, I bring this up to people, uh, the idea of like ego depletion, I think stereotype threat, for me, it's like a lot easier to understand if you're thinking about it in terms of ego depletion. Um, there's a, a, a really fun study where they, um, they made two groups do like uh, arithmetic problems. And for one group, they, um, they made them eat cookies before they did the arithmetic problems. So like, you know, that was a control condition, like, oh, eat a fun cookie and then do like three plus five. Um, <laughs> And then the other the other one's like you must eat all of these radishes. Uh, they're just like raw radishes. They taste terrible, uh, and they had to choke down the radishes. And they did the same problems, and they like overwhelmingly would just always do worse. Um, like you have to spend all your cognitive resources chewing on these radishes. It's miserable, and then you got to do the same thing as the other guy that gets to eat a cookie. Um, so I think stereotype threat is like a very fun analogy, right? Because it's like maybe the task is the same and maybe you're like the same level of good at it, but like you have to deal with the radishes, right? Yeah. Like you have to be like, no, it's fine. I'm, uh, it doesn't matter that my gender is X, Y, Z. Um, like that's you eating a radish. Right. And yeah. it's like, uh, so that, that's always one that comes to mind. Cause it's, it's like a good a, metaphor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally cool. picturing eating a radish right now. Not, yeah. Not <laughs> it's great. not a fun experience <laughs> no. in your mind. Um, but yeah, no. So I, I think that uh, I think if you if you have other other published works along these lines, uh, I definitely 
would love to read them because I think that this is like a very very fun like it, it appears in your mind when you read it right like mm-hmm. like this environment of all these people shouting and and being really excited um which made it I think very very fun to read uh mm-hmm. so definitely really really cool work yeah I I submitted that thinking it would it was the, like the most clear study I could submit and they they rejected it saying this isn't actually stereotype threat um <laughs> so I have some uh theoretical arguments to make <laughs> about yeah, yeah. why literally this is when people you know maybe i didn't read them a passage about how women perform less well than men but look at the effects <laughs> Isn't it yeah clear it's a big effect that? size yeah like, yeah i don't know what so, you would call that other than stereotype threat so the reviewer suggested i talk about cohort effects which is i, I don't know i'm <laughs> i'm still a little salty about that one so i haven't uh, started revising that one yet we'll see yeah it's all good that's academia for you yeah um but yeah so let's move on to the third part of your thesis which is uh i think also quite quite interesting it's the um if i remember right this is just like the gaming culture in general like accessibility mm-hmm. to women and minorities right mm-hmm. so talk to me a little bit about this yeah so um this was a survey-based study so i just asked people tell me about your experience throughout your life uh, playing video games, um, how did you discover them? Um, have you ever experienced anything negative in gaming contexts? It was just very large survey, not only with like these short answer questions, but also like personality variables, um, uh, gaming experience variables. So ga- like gaming self-efficacy, how b- good do you believe you are at games? Um, how much fun do you have when you play? How confident are you uh, in your ability to compete? How much do you play competitive games versus solo games versus cooperative games? All these other things, right? Um, so I've got a bunch of variables for these people, uh, how much they game. I've got a bunch of variables about the personality. So things like, um, how masculine and feminine they believe themselves to be, or, um, how much they believe, or they relate to their category, uh, gender category, or like the category of gamer or the category of esports player. Um, and then I've got these short answer questions, which were very rich data that, um, I still need to. <laughs> yeah. That, that looks hard to come through. It's. Well, and it's super interesting. So I just sit there like reading like 200 people's life experiences with how they first played games. And I just want to like spend my afternoon, (laughs) you know, doing that and and not thinking about it scientifically. (laughs) Um, And what I wanted to accomplish with this study was I believe um, because I've been in gaming so long and because I've been part of the Smash community, I have access to a lot of gamers, uh, non like, I'm not just, uh, I'm not working just with like, whatever college students are taking Psych 101, right? Like I've been in the community, uh, talking to people, getting their feedback, building building up trust, you know, or well, <laughs> depends on who you ask. I guess some people will never trust me after code of conduct stuff, but um, <laughs> that's what, okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> I have access to these people who have unique experiences that, that most researchers can't just walk in and get 50 to 100 women to fill out a survey on fit, or, gamer self-identified gamer women right like people who say i play 50 very hard to find that yeah yeah like there's that's one problem with a lot of the established gaming literature is that um either it's an all-male sample or they've got like uh you know four women that qualify like there's just such a huge um participation difference right now that all the conclusions are being drawn about men but who knows whether or not it's true about uh women or what like different factors are impacting the gender differences, you know, there's a lot there for all of science to try to solve. But yeah, for this study, I'm um, basically 
what are the group differences between the ones who still play video games and the ones who don't? Um, what about people who are non-binary? Uh, what about people who are transgender? Like, how, how are all these things and what we believe about ourselves and how we think of ourselves impacting our desire to play video games and also um, how long we end up sticking around in those contexts? So it's kind of a big study just because I took so many variables. Um, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to start with. <laughs> well, I, I do have a, a bunch of very interesting like threads that uh i got from from reading this but um i do think that uh how do i put this i think that the um the interesting thing here is how much of it is socialized versus how much of it would be like quote unquote innate so i always the way i always like talk to people about it right is um you know smash is not really like a intensely um physical activity right yeah it's yeah. not like a sport where like you could you could be like okay well like your your musculature depends on defines how how well you're going to perform right um and there's always talk about like you know innate biological differences between men and women uh when it comes to competitive activities in general um and i've never really like been one to really believe that like just as like as a as like a blanket statement because um the one example i always point to is like a riflery I don't know if you've ever looked at at a like sport shooting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's one of the very few sports in the NCAA that are co-ed. So men and women are actually not separated. They have one ranking list, uh, mm -hmm. very similar to our game. Um, now that you mentioned this, I think recently in the Olympics there was some uh, somebody somebody was like that woman's not holding the gun right, and then she like got first place or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, so it's, okay, I know it's, it's, it's very fun to think about, right? Because um, yeah. The gender balance in riflery is very, very balanced. Um, yeah. It's it's gender separated at like the professional level, but that's really just because like sports at the professional level are, are gender separated. Mm -hmm. um, like if you look at the scores that are put out by men and women at the professional level, they're like about the same. Um, they're the, the the ranking system for collegiate athletes is like very much a mix, like pretty even 50-50 between men and women. Like there's no real edge of one over the other. Um, and, you know, I, I always think about that, right? And I'm like, why is our game not like that? Why is our game not uh, evenly gender balanced? Um, I don't think that there's any real competitive effect. Um, and, like, the answer I always come back to thinking about it is that it's probably socialized in some way. Um, so I think that your work here in this chapter kind of speaks to, to that a little bit. So I think uh, with that in mind, I'm sort of interested in that perspective from, from this yeah. chapter from you. Yeah. So when I originally... Um... Uh, proposed this dissertation study to my committee, there were actually components of like getting actual reaction time and working memory capacity and some other things that we might think of as like talent in Smash. Um, but COVID kind of messed with that. So it just became just just a survey study. So uh, full disclosure, although I'm describing social effects, I didn't in this study measure any kind of, you know, quote, innate talent effects or hormones or whatever. Um, that being said, I'm on I'm totally on the same page as you as far as like theoretically, Smash should not be <laughs> there. I don't think there's any innate um, um, thing that makes you think differently in the. Okay, this is this is always a hard conversation because people are like, oh, but there are testosterone differences, and I'm like, yeah, but is that is testosterone like making a difference in motivation? Uh, you know competitiveness or is it is it actually changing cognition in the second by second level because i i can see the argument for overall motivation but i don't see the argument for like 
for some yeah, reason like decision to decision right yeah, yeah like like trying to decide where to the eye is not gonna be influenced by how much testosterone is coursing through your veins even if um uh, you know you are experiencing heightened testosterone due to a physiological reaction right like those two things might be correlated but not causal anyway so yes so most of this i was looking at these social factors um that that i think a lot of uh men particularly take for granted um and so earlier in the podcast, I talked about how like I was the only girl on the playground that, that wanted to talk about games. Um, or like if I brought a, a video game guide to read at recess, the teacher would take it away. But if the boys brought video game guides, they could keep them and read it at recess, right? And I'm just wondering, you know, how much like of when I was like eight, nine and 10, those experiences um, uh, did or did not encourage me to, to still game in my adulthood. Um, uh, and is that true for everybody, right? Like. Uh, what if someone like was assigned male at birth and that's not who they are, but like that was still something that was socially acceptable, like the teacher wouldn't take away their game guide. Um, and, you know, how all these things interact to 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 contribute to the, the probability of playing video games a lot um, or at all. Right. Or even being open to the idea of playing. And so there were three uh, kind of um, um, concepts that I tried to link together in this. So access, experience, and interest. So access is this component I'm talking about in terms of, I got my game guide taken away. Uh, I didn't have girlfriends that I could talk to about video games, or I had one. We played and we played Harvest Moon together and we played, uh, you know, took turns on Final Fantasy, like <laughs> Secret of Mana, like um, borrowing her golden sun game, like that was a good friendship <laughs> for a while. Um, you know, but that was like the only uh, uh, person I, I had. Um, and then like every night I was writing my dissertation, my spouse was in the other room with his discord of 10 guys that are all on voice chat talking about their games. And they're on game number 15 out of, uh, uh, in the month that like they've tried, right? And like there's yeah, yeah. so much more like information being exchanged and expertise being shared. Like, no, they're not just, I'm not, they're not sitting there alone. Like I was like in the help section of Final Fantasy 14 trying to figure out how to change my class, right? They're just yeah, like, yeah. hey dude, uh, how do you change your class? And then, then somebody just like, oh yeah, uh, you just switch the weapon out. Um, you know, so th there's this social transfer of knowledge um, that different people have access to because of uh, what other people think of them. Like it's, it's not that I didn't want to talk about games. It's that other people looked at me and said, that person doesn't know about games or that person only likes games to get male attention or something like that, right? The basically the way other people think of us, the opportunities that other people present to us, those impact our ability and our willingness to do a thing, <laughs> especially a hard thing, like getting good at Smash or, or yeah. failing over and over again in a fighting game. Um, I, if I think, Maybe I'm failing at this fighting game because, you know, I've got 10 years less experience than the guys that, that played fighting games all throughout the adolescence. You know, that's going to that's going to affect me. Um, so that's the access component of the study is literally I asked people, what, who's the first person you played games with? And men overwhelmingly, uh, I think out of like seven different categories, like 53% said friends. And for women, um, only 8% said friends. Uh, the rest of that percentage was distributed between siblings, parents, and um, like significant others, that kind of thing. So 
I think that there's a really strong social component to gaming. And there's a lot of research that's been done on, um, you know, men's friendships don't look like emotional disclosure. They look like doing shared activities together, right? Um, versus women's friendships are all about social disclosure. Um, and, and that could be one reason why we see such big gaming differences is this difference in access. Okay, <laughs> um, so that's one, one general concept. Another general concept is um, interest. So why did I want to read about video games on the playground and other people didn't? And there, I did find some evidence that women who like uh, thinking about systems uh, tend to gravitate towards video games. So uh, these questionnaires are asking things like, um, when you're on a train, are you thinking about uh, how the routes connect. Uh, when you build, when you get a new piece of furniture, do you read the directions before you build it? Um, are you interested in strategy? Do you enjoy uh, uh, thinking about uh, how air conditioners work? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're they're not they're a little actually more gender neutral than the ones I just described. But basically, do you like systems? Do you like how things thinking about how things work and how they influence each other and impact each other? And generally speaking, men tend to score higher as a population on those uh, interests, measures of interest, and women tend to not score as high. Um, and again, that could be a result of any number of things. But generally speaking, that's that's the pattern. What I'm finding is that women who play more than 10 hours per week have the same scores of interest um, in, in these, yeah, yeah, yeah. these systematizing um, um, topics. Um, so there's something about games that uh, <laughs> that scratch that itch for people. So maybe there's a difference in interest, right? Um, another measure I had of interest was um, how much they played across their lives. So I asked them, okay, when you were ages five to 12, how many days per week did you play games? When you were 12 to 15, when you were 18, what about now? And look over time, who ends up playing more, who ends up playing less, right? And with women, there's a really uh, steep drop off around puberty. So they actually might be playing four or five days a week when they're eight to 12. And then suddenly, um, if in particular, they relate to the identity of womanhood, if they feel like I'm a girl, a girl, a girly girl, in fact, or, you know, um, if they feel like they're a member of their gender category, that that's, it's like this total drop off. It's, it's actually the, the cisgender women was the only group that played less on average video games from childhood to adolescence than any of the other categories. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's just a, uh, so the question is, you know, is it interest in, there's both this interest in systems and there's this identity component of like, maybe you lose interest because you think it doesn't overlap with who you are anymore. Um, yeah, that, that also jumps out at me as like potentially social, right? Where it's mm -hmm. like less a, you know, I, I think that a lot of the, the, the naysayers would say that this is uh, indicative of a, of a biological difference that emerges at puberty, but I don't necessarily think that that's, that would be the case either, right? Like, I, I think that this has a lot more to do with your, uh, like, what is the definition of uh, being a member of your gender category, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's like a very highly social uh, definition, right? Uh, so that's that's super interesting. That especially like given that that's the only group that that appears to, um, mm -hmm. that's very very interesting. Oh yeah, that's yeah, and there's a lot of so. I did some developmental work. Um, Kids can be, the way kids' minds develop is really interesting, but I never want to drag another four-year-old child into an experiment room again. So I don't do, I don't do developmental research anymore, but I know enough about how gender stereotypes form and the human brain. Um, so 
early on, you know, it's much easier to say like, this is red and this is blue. And um, these things are separate and we categorize. Human brains are great at categorizing and creating heuristics to sort things into categories because it makes our lives easier. Like, is that thing edible? Is it not? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Can I write with that? Can I, you know, there's so many judgments we make all the time. Um, and early on, we are told again and again and again and again and again, clothing colors, uh, reactions to how to our pain, that the categories of man and woman are extremely important in deciding everything about you, your future, uh, the tone of voice you use with other people, what kinds of sports you can play, um, if you're punished or not for crying. <laughs> you know, these gender categories are, are introduced so early. And the human brain, when we're, we, we can't even think beyond that really until age 12. That's when we start abstracting. But you've already taught the four and the eight and the 10 year old child that these categories are salient, right? They're, like by the time they get abstract thought, it's too late. You've already shaped yeah. their entire life for them to be based on, are they blue or are they pink? <sighs> so yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's social. And I think it's interesting that you can get like a one-year-old baby um, to, or a two-year-old baby to be surprised to see a man putting on lipstick. Um, that means that they've already been see they they've seen people putting on makeup enough times, and they've seen only their uh, uh, female caregiver putting on makeup enough times that they're surprised. At two years old, oh my God, we have so much work to do. <laughs> like we, <laughs> there's so much we have to undo before we even have a chance for our kids who have grown up not being having like so much of their life already pushed upon them by other people based on gender categories. Oh, I hate it. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. That's my. <laughs> no, no. I, I so I, it's funnily enough. The thing that jumps out at me is um, is a lot of like my own work within machine learning, mm. um, because uh, you know, like a lot of cognitive people that get into machine learning, um, I just want to talk about people all the time, about how how we're so good at a lot of things. We're so interesting, just as like creatures that learn, um, and uh, there's there's really something to be said about how um how good humans are at categorizing not only just at building the categories but out of abstracting new categories from very very few information um and i think that that's like uh that's like one of the biggest things that'll jump out at you if you ever do machine learning research because it's like oh yeah you know i can train this thing that achieves like human expert level performance at differentiating these two categories but i need like 50 million examples uh it's like you know you can show like a two-year-old like a novel shape and you're like this is a dax and then you can show them like 50 other shapes and one of them is the same shape as your dax and you'd be like where is the dax and they'll just they'll, they'll go right to it and they'll be like this thing this is your dax it's like it's so hard to train machine learning models to do the same thing um because it needs to have a very very strong awareness of like what it means for a category to exist like it needs to reason about itself about its own taxonomy of categories and it's just like having to build that you do actually get a lot of information about gender <laughs> as a very young child and it's like you build this extremely rigid category um and it's actually not rigid at all <laughs> it's actually very malleable oh, yeah. so i think it's a it definitely plays a large part in like the crazy social effects that you see emerge out of very young children for this yeah i, I mean to be honest i was kind of nervous about doing this research because of this you know if i'm asking about childhood that means i also probably need to ask about gender assigned at birth or sex assigned at birth versus gender. Um, and um, I mostly identify as cis. I, uh, uh, 
I use, I use they pronouns because I don't want it to matter. Um, I also use she pronouns, so don't feel bad if you've always used she for me. But like, you know, I'm not someone who puts up every single day with being uh, misgendered or told that like, I'm innately one thing. Um, so I wanted to be sure that when I did this research and when I talk about like assigned female at birth, assigned male at birth and how those are different experiences to not invalidate people's, the entire spectrum of gender that is like, there's so much, so many ways to express yourself and so many ways to think of yourself. Um, and, uh, and I gotta say, this research showed me that there's a lot of queer people out there who just love games for the ability to explore identity and, and social roles and everything. And I'm so, I'm so into that um, uh, as a queer person. That is also why, one reason I really love games. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to be really cognizant of, you know, this is something that people categorize you on. And though, yes, there, there are probably differences in how other people treated you um, uh, at some point, that does not mean that what you're, the way you're living now is fake or bad or anything like that. So um, this was really difficult for me because I didn't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> like that's the last thing I want to do with my research because there is so much anti-trans and anti, uh, well, anti-queer, anti-everything, <laughs> racist, yeah. like all, all, everything. Academia has a lot of problems because a lot of people that have been doing work have been the same, the same kind of person um, for many, 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 many years. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to thank, I guess, um, there were so many people who I consulted or I would just ask, I would just tweet out and be like, oh my God, I don't know how to handle this one part. Can somebody please help me? And there were so many people that were willing to come forward and be like- I loved whenever know. you made those types of tweets. <laughs> I, it really warmed my heart as someone that also did research uh, that like you cared about the ethical questions and that like all these people from the community that you were working in, like just emerged to help you. Like every single time you had one of these tweets, it was like that. Yeah. So it really it made such a, and there were so many people that participated that identify as non-binary trans i felt trusted and i felt like oh <laughs> thank that's you like, that's like a hard it's a hard group to get measurements for right like even just like because like i so when i was doing work um in a lab for for gaming uh once i graduated i like left the school and like the research effort just died because like there's it's impossible to get access to like you know expert game players if you're not already in the community and you can't you don't know what tournaments you got to go to or whatever like if you're just like you know you know 50 year old guy that's the chair of your department like you're not going to know where GamerCon is right yeah. it's like a so you know just thinking about like progressively more niche subjects um you know non-binary people within a niche gaming community certainly sounds like the most impossible group of people to gather <laughs> information for of all time so the fact that you had like a pretty solid amount of them in your in your sample pool was like very very cool i thought i mean i think it also speaks to changing norms i think i'm so excited to see the next you know two or three generations and how we choose to express gender or you know not or <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's a lot of changes happening and that's great no i did i definitely agree so um, let's let's like uh yeah, do you sorry, need yeah. me to stop no 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 <laughs> okay there's only one last part that i wanted to cover yeah go for um, it so i talked about access and interest and the last part is experience and i think that's actually what the most research out there is is on so experiences of harassment or othering so I asked everybody, what, what kinds of negative experiences did you have in gaming? And the two big things that came out of that, um, first of all, I had no idea that um, aggression caused so much interpersonal conflict with men. So, you know, I, I'm just talking about, oh, yeah, men use each other's friendships to, like, access gaming and stuff. 
but there's also a lot of friendships that end because somebody gets salty about a game or because somebody like becomes a dick or or like falls down an alt right rabbit hole or right, something right. right like it turns out that a lot of the breakdown in um uh, uh men's relationships around gaming doesn't have to do uh, has to do with aggression and anger at each other um i didn't expect that uh and i think that speaks to gender norms and how they limit people and how they limit male friendships right oh the fact that um men are expected to only express a certain kind of emotion and usually it's anger <laughs> um like that that is going to strain people in their relationships so that was interesting didn't expect that would love to do more research on that um, but also then, of course, replicating the findings that women experience harassment of all kinds, uh, uh, game throwing, um, active harassment, passive harassment, getting hit on, uh, threats, um, uh, all of that, you know, uh, my work replicates what anybody could have already told you about. Um, if you, uh, and I should say, anybody who, who's like voice on voice chat doesn't sound like a 30 year old dude. Right. So if you if you um, have uh, have been modulating your voice to sound different, people are going to pick up on that and, and try to um, throw slurs at you, homophobic slurs or whatever else. Right. Um, yeah. So that experience component, um, I think, obviously, that that's one thing that actually could be a first step. Like, OK, we should we should punish people more for or or like incentivize inclusion or punish exclusion or whatever else, you know, but what what I think after doing this whole dissertation project is like that ex that experience uh, component, like women don't stay in gaming because we get exhausted of all that shit and we just leave. Um, uh, you know, it's not worth it. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why I played solo games for about eight years, right? Like <laughs> the Smash community was the first time I'd really come back into a place where I wanted to talk about games with other people. Um, but like the experience is already a result of everything else. And so it's, you know, as much as we can study it because it's there, it's in behaviors that we can measure on Twitch chat. Um, I know that there's someone who did smash research on like smash boards and uh, the link between gendered words and positive and negatives, you know, there's a lot. Um, I bet that's rough. Yeah. There's... <laughs> Just remembering my time on smash boards, I definitely, yeah. definitely do not expect that to be a very positive correlation. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, I tried to get pieces of access, interest, and experience. And of course, the experience things weren't, weren't that surprising in terms of, you know, women or just non-cisgender men. But, um, you know, that's the reality. And that was my dissertation. <laughs> it's so odd to me. That, that last component about, um, you know, harassment. Um, yeah, I remember like a year and a half ago. Um, like, if you brought this up people like would would be cynical about it being a real thing which is so it was just always so odd to me right because it's like you know like relative to the amount of men in the community like i guess there aren't that many women right like if you're like a you know if you select a random friend group within the male community like maybe there's like a high probability that there's no women in it but it's like i feel like you talk to literally any woman that has done any anything anywhere near gaming and they have stories upon stories of harassment that they get levied upon them so like the fact that people think it's like not a real thing is so unusual to me and i think that that attitude i guess is is uh people are starting to believe that all of the research that's been done on this and all of everyone's experiences that they've all said is actually true um but it's just always weird to me that like this was like a controversial thing within our community for so long that it's like oh there's no harassment everyone's so nice it's like oh. 
There's a lot. There's yeah. layers to, to why, you know, people might think that or believe it or disbelieve the people who are telling the stories. But yeah, it, I, I mean, about a year and a half ago or two years or however long it's been, it kind of became clear that it's not just, you know, mouth people breathers on Twitch up. chat. Yeah. Yeah. That like, yeah. yeah. But let's end this on a more positive note. Yeah. Um, well, so let's let's wrap up like the implications, right? So oh, I, yeah. I know that early on in your paper, um, you talk about uh, so like obviously this is all very relevant to us as people that exist within the Smash community, but um, I think there are broader implications. And you mentioned science, technology, engineering, math as one particularly uh, you know a valent place that this could have implications. Um, and when I read that, I immediately my mind went to the Google memo. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Um, where you know this guy published his paper about how it's like oh all of this is discriminating against men because it's uh innate biological differences um and i think that a lot of your work stands in direct contrast with a lot of uh a lot of the ideas put forward in that so i want to hear your thoughts specifically on how this type of work can impact areas outside gaming as well not just like within our, our little community yeah so uh actually one of my other publications is specifically on children's stereotypes about uh, scientists. So if you ask a kid to draw a scientist, um, at different at, at a certain age, they'll just draw whatever they are. <laughs> Kids are really egocentric when they're young. There's um, there's a lot of work on the child as scientist out of uh, out of the probabilistic reasoning people. Yeah, yeah. So that's really funny, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they, you ask them to draw a person of any kind, and they and they draw themselves. And it, same goes for scientists. But around age twelve, suddenly all the men, well, suddenly all the men are still drawing men and all the women are drawing men all of a sudden around age 12. <laughs> and um, so, you know, actually there's a lot more research in STEM than there is in gaming with gender and stuff. But if I, if I were to give like a, what is unique about doing it in Smash is that we're all here willingly, right? Like there's some, uh, there's a lot of STEM research where it's a confound that people in STEM fields um, make more money. And so, even though women are inherently interested in it, they are trying to claw their way out of poverty. And so they, they go and get that computer science degree or that you know, molecular biology or engineering. Um, so what's interesting about gaming, I think, is this will be maybe one of the, you know, there's less incentives uh, uh, like that to, to create any kind of uh, opposite, uh, opposing effect. But what does it mean? <laughs> I, I guess, I hope that this work get somebody to think about why games are the way they are differently. And I hope that maybe, you know, some team owner or some player will be able to sit back and think, huh, there maybe there has been a difference, right? And maybe instead of just recruiting people that are good, we should uh, offer more opportunities for people to become good. Or instead of like having a token girl and telling her to suck it up when she, you know, when her teammate says, calls her a, a B word or whatever, um, like, maybe I should take that seriously, right? I, that's what I want most from, from this work is like people recognizing emotions matter. Uh, your, your, your performance state is, is deeply embedded in your emotional reactions, which are deeply embedded in physical and biological responses to stimuli around you. Um, and uh, the experiences of women reflect a different reality uh, environment surrounding it. And so maybe we should think about that environment, thinking about changing it. Um, uh, or, or improving it in some way, or supporting people who aren't, you know, the typical gamer in different ways. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was great. Yeah, I, I do think that um, 
I, I really do hope that this that this work gets some eyes on it because I do think that uh, reading through it, I had a lot of. Uh, it, I thought it was very challenging in a lot of places, right? Like I, I thought it was very thought provoking. Um, I think that uh, if people like looked at the results, like even if it was just like a condensed version that people could read through, um, I'm sure you have a poster that you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, there uh, have been yeah. a few. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I think uh, you know just thinking through it, right? Just trying to reason through your own experiences within the community and how you perceive other people that exist within the same community within you. I think that it's a, it's very tempting uh, to just pattern match your own experience onto other people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like everyone thinks the same way as me. Everyone has had the same experiences with me. Um, everyone likes the same things. Everyone dislikes the same things. Um, and I do think that if anything, uh, if people could move past that a little bit and realize that like maybe their experience is not necessarily representative of every other person that exists within our community, it would make the the existence within our community, I think, a little bit better for a lot of people. So I think this is a great work. I was super happy reading it. I'm very happy I got the chance to talk to you about it. Thank you. Um, so let's, let's wind down a little bit. Um, yeah. So we do have some questions, uh, but before we get to the questions, there is a, there is a segment that we do on the show. Okay. Um, I don't know how we always does this. He always transitions to this so beautifully, right? He always talks about, oh, you know, we're not all, we're always talking about Smash all the time. We always talk to Smashers about Smash, but we're all people and we all do things that aren't Smash. So let's like talk for two minutes about what we've been doing outside of Smash related stuff. He always works this in somehow, and I never understand how it happens. <laughs> so this was a bit of a clumsy immediate jump. But Kyle, what have you been doing outside of Smash in the last week or so? Make our All Star brawl. Yeah, tell Is me about that. Too this. Close? So I Is that too close? <laughs> that, no, okay, I'm... so I'll allow it. I haven't played it, so you can <laughs> talk okay. about it to me a little bit. Tell me uh, about no, Nick I All Star. Just, I just got it. Like and I'm trying to learn a box controller and that's been challenging. Oh, you're learning a box controller. Yeah. Um, before that, I was playing a bunch of New World. I was really uh, not excited about giving Bezos my money, um, but then the social component kicked in and I, my, <laughs> my spouse was walking the dog and he's like, if my Q pops, you gotta move around, okay? And then I moved around and then I fished and then I was like, shit, this game's fun. And so I bought it. <laughs> um, I, I'm working as a postdoc in medical sciences right now. So I'm learning a whole lot about kidney cancer that I never knew before in my whole life. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. What um, type of work I'm, are you doing? It's, uh, I'm basically a little um, paper writing monkey for, <laughs> for these people. Um, they needed a psychometrician. And since I have a statistics master's, um, I jumped in and I'm like, yeah, let's see how I can make my skills work. Um, but I'm looking at uh, gaming related postdocs, but like this is, this is, a great learning experience for the next year or two. <laughs> yeah, I think I think medical data is. Uh, I, I feel like that we veered right back to academia, but oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, I think that medical data is so interesting because um, it just feels like there's so many problems and there's so much data, mm -hmm. and there's like just not enough eyes on it. Like it's funny That's... you think about like all the people that become doctors and stuff. It's like they're not enough doctors. <laughs> we need yeah. more doctors. It, yeah. it takes eight years to become a doctor, and like literally every single person visits doctors all the time. So it's like. Yeah. And we need somebody to like look at all the data patterns of all this these yeah, treatments yeah. doctors are doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's oh, uh, over the pandemic I started collecting pins, uh, enamel oh, pins. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's my new thing. Right before we started, I was opening packages. I've got a little um, 
Oh, I watched Squid Game. That was great. Uh, I'm rewatching Cowboy Bebop because that because of the live action movie. Little girl dressed like Pikachu. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So normally I talk about D and D or acting in the fair, but those things haven't been happening really. So. Oh no! Yeah, I guess that's because the pandemic. I didn't yeah. even think about that. I uh, I know that there was a, a Renaissance fair near where I live a little bit mm-hmm. ago, and we didn't end up going because of because of COVID ramping mm-hmm. a little bit up recently. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I didn't know you were in it though. That's cool. Oh, I, I love acting. That's that's one reason I ever hopped on the mic in Smash at all. <laughs> it was because I already felt like I could just talk about shit and people would listen somewhat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but haven't gotten many opportunities. So a lot of it's, you know, trying new games at home, hanging out with my spouse and my uh, doggy and um, nice. collecting lots of pins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, for me within the last week it's been a very busy week because uh, i started my master's up recently so i've just been doing homework all the time oh, it's just like an all my That's time a lot. yeah um but uh one thing that i have started doing yeah, i made a tweet about it earlier but uh I've, I'm, I'm trying to make bento boxes in the morning because uh i'm trying to uh save me and my fiance some money because yeah, we yeah. both get like food truck food when yeah. we go into the work the workplace and it's like 15 dollars oh, for yes. a sandwich and it's like yeah. oh, i can't i can't be doing this anymore yeah um i don't know how to make bentos so like i made like lentil curry and it was delicious it was um it's a rainbow plant life if you ever if you ever feel like lentil curry it's like she's like a okay. vegan yeah. youtuber it's great i'm not like vegan or anything but sometimes i just go on her channel because her recipes are really good yeah i made this red lentil curry and i put it in and I'm like, all right, bento boxes, color theory. And I put like some fruits and vegetables and they're like four colors. And I put in like the, 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 the rice at the bottom layer of the bento. And I'm like, I am so cool. I'm making bentos. <laughs> this is great. And I hand it to my, I hand it to my fiance. She's like, how do I heat this with fruit in it? I'm no! like, oh, how do you heat this with fruit in it? I don't know anything about bentos. I just made colorful food and I guess you have to eat the fruit before you heat it up. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. So that was a disaster, but that's what's been going on with me. Uh, making bentos. Let's get to the patron questions. Uh, we do not have uh, that many as normal. Uh, the patrons are very bad at giving us questions. So I'll ask a couple and then maybe if anyone's in Twitch chat. Uh, so we have one from Curly W which I thought was very funny. Uh, have you ever been in the situation where you and your partner are at a friend's outdoor party and someone there says, hi, Kyle, and you both turn around? Yes, that happens all the time. Do it... you ever get used to it is the follow-up do I get... question. Oh, do I get used to it? Usually, if somebody does it more than once, we, we establish like, okay, you're going to call him Barnes or you're going to call me pig or, you know, it depends on the context or <laughs> yeah, like yeah. my, my mom calls me Kai. Like most of my family just calls me Kai. And so Kyle versus Kai is a little easier. <laughs> um, it yeah, is. No, okay. I think it's a cute problem to have though. Yeah, no, I'm it's fine. very funny. <laughs> I remember, um, what was it when Taylor Swift was dating Taylor Lautner way back when and everyone was like, they're both going to be Taylor Lautner. Yeah. And, yeah, That's I didn't funny. take his name when we met. Yeah, him. no, I, I, I think <laughs> yeah. that it's very smart that you did not take yeah. his name because I think it would have been very confusing. Um, so I thought that was great. Uh, but that was a fun question. Thank you, Curly W, for the question. Um, okay, we have one from YCZ, which I do not think is a good question, but I will ask it anyways because okay. I love Leon. 
if each member of the five gods were a famous psychologist, oh no. who would they be? <laughs> Do I know five famous psychologists? <laughs> I feel like fame is so relative. Like, if you're a social psychologist, <laughs> you care about way more about Bandura than any yeah, yeah. scientist would, right? Like, Especially if you're in gaming, you care about Bandura. It's like, what? oh, yeah, that's definitely hungry bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... Oh man, I don't know that anyone's a good match for Freud, and I don't know that anyone's a good match for Jung either. Um, I agree that both of those don't really fit. No, I'm trying to think like what would Armada fit? What would Leffen fit? Who? Who? I should say who would it fit? I don't. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to answer this question. I'm sorry, but thank you. Maybe for you can get back to him on about. Twitter. After the show, when you <laughs> yeah. when you when you're in the shower and you're like, oh, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Who who uh, who Leffen is as a psychologist? We have a great question from Socks, maybe in chat. So I'll 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 open it up to chat. Um, how do you believe stereotype slash cohort threat will impact women and non-binary folks' performance in online tournaments compared to uh, in-person tournaments? So the, actually, I think online tournaments are could potentially be a great equalizer because you're not sitting down next to the person. Um, however, if that were true, then why do we get so much crap even when we're playing Overwatch, right? Or CSGO or any other kind of um, online game, right? There's still gonna be harassment, but it's, it's like, so actually this is something I think about a lot because on one hand, if somebody's sitting next to you, are they really gonna like call you a B word? Versus if they were like in, in a chat when they're anonymous, right? Like, I don't know, maybe sitting next to you is protects you a little bit but on the other hand you just walked into the room and you saw that you're the only one out of 16 people um so i think online play could be really good um but it doesn't fix uh all of the like other stuff that came before um and you know the, <laughs> some some of the funny tweets during the pandemic in the smash community have been like people how people talk to each other you know uh in the the match you know chat <laughs> yeah 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 or how salty they get or terrible or toxic it's really funny it's really yeah. bad because i always i always see those and i picture like the guy in the chair being like you'll never mm. amount to anything as a player mm. <laughs> <laughs> being like bro good luck at losers i'm sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah no so i i saw this question and i immediately thought of um wizards of the coast put out because they have like a team that that looks at, at data all the time and they put out a they put out a tweet which was like kind of wild at the time which was basically they looked at the gender distribution of uh magic the gathering online and the gender balance was like really close to even it was like 55 45 but like you go to any magic the gathering tournament and it's like 99 percent men yeah um and like a lot of people were like this is wrong this cannot be correct uh you know like it didn't even go away at like skill level like people would like 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 filter it by the level of, of skill that it was and it was just still pretty gender balanced it's like oh yeah you know like turns out like women still like the thing it's just that they don't want to be in this environment that's like they're going to be the only woman there um so i think that the online tournament example is a is a really fun one uh, i do think it, it it'll be a little bit to, to fix the culture stuff but i do yeah. think that uh the layer of anonymity is like very valuable, I think, for avoiding that kind of stuff. I like being able to just quit out of the game 
if if some bad shit happens you know mm-hmm. that that's that's nice for me like if somebody's really or, or being able to mute them that's not something i could ever do in person and i don't feel physically threatened by somebody else um so yeah i think online tournaments could be an equalizer in some ways all right uh okay so let's get one more let's get one more in before we before we end it uh so this one is from our good friends over at melee stats who i think it must be a note on the melee stats account um <laughs> So one question I had for Kyle is what factors played into the performance slash expectations around trans men in the scene? Feel like that specific group of people in Smash is still relatively small, but definitely present. Yeah. So uh, I didn't get any trans men in my survey. That's the only group. Really? Yeah. I got so many non-binary people of both, both uh, sexes assigned at birth. And I got a lot of uh, trans women, but I did not get a single trans man. And actually I'm, one of my friends of like 13 years is a trans man. And so I was like, bro, you didn't even do my survey. <laughs> you, 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 I know because not a single trans man did the survey. And he's like, oh, I didn't think. Uh. <laughs> so <laughs> shout outs to Ray. Um, anyway, uh, I think that, yes. So one of my advisors is a little more old fashioned and asked me, well, do you think that these non-binary people who were assigned female at birth uh, transitioned in part so they could match uh the people around them a little better um and i i you know there's a classic are boomer thing to say yeah yeah it, it was a very boomer thing to say not gonna lie um uh but you know i still have to like engage with that question yeah, yeah, and yeah. try to like explain why or what you know what i do or don't think um i think that uh you know tra- trans men because of the way they were treated when they were assigned female at birth, like those, those early couple of years are probably statistically less likely, um, to be, to play games just because they were afforded fewer opportunities, but I don't think there's anything stopping any, um, after, you know, especially after transition. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for gender expression and exploration in gaming, that uh, that could be really awesome and productive. Uh, but the question was about performance specifically, right? Uh, I believe it was, uh, just expectations slash performance so yeah i i think um well i think when your identity lines up with what you're doing it feels good no matter the situation and so i think that um it can be a very affirming and good experience maybe performance boosting maybe maybe just not you know stereotype threat i don't know um i'd have to talk to some trans men about it because uh obviously i didn't get any data (laughs) on that so no that's very interesting that you got zero i was like whoa that that, that was a shocker yeah yeah well, you've been a great guest, and maybe this is selfish because I just got to talk about papers with another person that likes to talk about papers for like a couple hours. But I had a lot of fun. Uh, where can people follow you? Anything you want to shill or shout out? The floor is yours for this one. Um, well, once I start publishing papers, y'all can retweet them and talk about the science. I think that'd be cool, but I'm not there yet. So <laughs> um, uh, my Twitter, my gaming Twitter is at Dr. Piggy, PhD. Um, as long as you're not like a harassing person, I'm usually down to talk and be, and you can DM me or, um, you know, I tweet quite a bit. So <laughs> you can always engage in any way. Um, I love talking to people at tournaments about science, especially like if we we're like drinking a beer or whatever, and then we can just like go off on this tangent. Um, so thanks. Thanks for giving me the space to talk about this stuff. Yeah, no, this was great research. So I was I was super excited to have you on. Um, I'm, I'm glad you have all this cognitive science background because we already are on like this vibe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
All right. Uh, next week we will have some guests that will be announced soon. Um, hopefully, uh, Wheat returns from his uh, road trip safe and sound, and I will not have to unfortunately, you know, not know what to say to end episodes. But have a great day, everyone. You've all been great. Thank you, Kyle, for coming with us. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Peace, guys.